Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investment, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I support a growing community of top climate and ESG leaders as the Chief Experience Officer at Nations Wealth, and I'm an advisor to the climate practice at IDEO. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and when it comes to climate action, I know I'll be a lifelong learner always looking to have more impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you found us. Sign up for updates and suggest ideas for future episodes at investedinclimate.com. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for joining. This is about business certainty. This is about risk reduction for the agriculture industry and business continuity. And I think that message is really starting to seep in that climate action is paramount to business success in the long term not just for companies like Danone, but for farmers who are those small business owners that need to drive this change and need to be part of that conversation. So I know that it's hard and this work can sometimes feel slow moving and you know messy. I think these types of conversations really animate my excitement to keep going and progress. And so I do think that we can get there. Hi, folks. It's easy to get excited about the sexy new technology of climate tech startups, but we're simply not going to tackle climate change without big companies making big changes. To be honest, that's part of why I recently started a new role at Nationswell, where I get to help a growing community of chief sustainability officers and ESG leaders take bold action. But don't worry, this episode isn't about me. It's about Danone the well-known global dairy company that's taking bold action to reduce its emissions. And it's about the Environmental Defense Fund, or EDF, a nonprofit that, amongst many other things, is partnering with Danone and other companies to help accelerate their climate action. As a result of its partnership with EDF, Danone recently became the first food and agriculture company to set a methane-specific climate target, a 30% reduction from its fresh milk sourcing by 2030. We're joined by two leaders behind this commitment, EDF Director Katie Anderson and Danone's Vice President of Public Affairs and Regenerative Agriculture Policy, Chris Adamo. We talk about how this partnership is helping Danone achieve its ambitious target, what other companies are learning from their experience, the role of policy, what the future looks like, and much more. This episode is packed with insights from the front line of transforming a large company and agriculture overall. Enjoy. Katie and Chris, hello. Welcome to Invest in Climate. Hi, great to be here. Thanks so much, Jason. Well, great to have you here. Where are you both dialing in from today? I am in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's very rainy here, Jason. So happy to have some sunny faces to be looking at here. Same weather, but just north in Arlington, Virginia for my house. It's been crazy. We don't need to belabor the weather, but I was just in Arizona for the Green Biz Conference. And I mean, it snowed in parts of Arizona and we had a thunderstorm and it was cold. So I think we are all eager for spring, perhaps. Hey, I really enjoyed the conversation that we had previously and just getting to speak with you a couple of weeks ago. So I'm really looking forward to today's conversation as well. You know, people talk all the time about the need for collaboration and partnership and hearing how you two work together and how well your organizations complement each other was really exciting. And we'll get into that. But first, let's just learn about each of you. Katie, let's start with you. Tell us a bit about your background, EDF, and the role you play there. Yeah, thanks so much, Jason. So my name's Katie Anderson, and I'm a director at Environmental Defense Fund. And I lead our work with food and agriculture companies to help set and achieve ambitious climate action. And so, you know, EDF, for those of you who don't know us, we are a leading global nonprofit focused on game-changing solutions to the world's most pressing environmental challenges. And we're really focused on climate and finding solutions that can work for people as well. That's really at the center of everything that we do. We have been working with the private sector since the early 1990s and really trying to find ways that we can work collaboratively to drive 
action that's going to work for business and also drive real impact for the planet. And that has been really a core pillar of how EDF works. So my team focuses on that for the ag industry. And we're really excited for about the opportunity to work collaboratively with Danone on their new methane commitment. Fantastic. Chris, what about you? Danone is a household brand name, but many people don't know about the company's environmental efforts. Help us get situated by hearing about your background, your role, and also the broader context of Denon's sustainability commitment. So I'm Vice President of Public Affairs and Regenerative Agriculture Policy, which brings a few different roles and responsibility. Number one, policy advocacy and thinking about how Denone can be a contributor to a larger conversation around public policy that can affect, obviously, a broader swath of, of, of the world that we work in. Um, and also working with our internal team on regenerative agriculture, which for us means working direct with farmers in our supply chain, thinking strategically about how we build that program out, how we can incentivize and help pay for some of the costs up front to try and find a different kind of ROI for both the farms and for the company. Myself, by training, I'm an environmental attorney, actually, and came into, been with the company about five years now, so I'm still a little bit new in the corporate world, but spent uh, over a decade in the federal government doing public policy of all sorts. Really got into the climate policy back in probably 2006, 2007, went to my first COP in Poznan, Poland, uh, representing the U.S. government at the time, and so worked in the U.S. Senate for about 10 years and also worked for President Obama and his Council on Environmental Quality uh, for the last couple of years of that administration. So after that, worked with nonprofits, thinking about different agriculture strategy and uh, public land strategy. I mean, I've worked really almost across the spectrum of different environmental policies in my career, which has been super fun. Keep falling back to agriculture one way or another, just because it's, you know, so much of our land base obviously is in is ag and forestry. And so for me, that's just been really fun to explore that and figure out all the different ways in which you can bring people together and produce uh, hopefully a better public good along with uh, the food that we eat. So it's been uh, a blast for me to be at Danone. It's actually been a a really perfect fit in a number of ways because as a company, Danone has just got such a rich, awesome history of trying to figure out how to be a different kind of business. We actually just hit our 50-year mark for what we call the dual purpose. So back in 1972, our CEO at the time talked about how business needs to think about both social benefit and business benefit coming together. So for us, it's, it's been a really interesting ride. And uh, actually, when I joined the company in 2018, we were just on the cusp of becoming B Corp certified here in the United States. And at the time in 2018, we were the largest B Corp certification in the world. I think Naturo may have just surpassed us, which is a good thing. We want to see more people surpass us in terms of big companies becoming B Corp certified. But it was a huge attraction for me to come and think about how to build a different kind of business, um, especially via sustainability and healthy foods. Well, it definitely seems like you are surrounded by kindred spirits at Danone, a lot of history and action on the environmental and climate front. Actually, the company has received a, a fair amount of attention. And we know that Danone's previous CEO, Emmanuel Faber, was ousted by activist investors who claimed he did not strike the right balance between shareholder value and sustainability. And the accusation was that he was pushing too hard or pushing for too much uh, sustainability efforts too fast. How did that change Danone's climate commitment? Well, I can say a number of things about that. Number one, Emmanuel Faber was an incredible leader. I know a lot of us came to work for the company. He was a, a selling piece for a lot of us. He was someone that I didn't know before um, I started to talk to Danone, but was really impressed by obviously his vision and his words. Still, he's an incredible leader, I think, in in the, the space of climate risk and climate disclosure. And, and I think we'll continue to look to him to see how he can push us all along. But I can tell you that the company as a whole, again, I mentioned the 50-year history we have in trying to think about this dual purpose, number one. And number two, you know, we joined Science-Based Target Initiative and have signed up for that full scope initiative and roadmap to try and build our climate impact out across our entire value chain. And that hasn't changed. If anything, we've doubled down to try and be more targeted um, and more strategic across. And I think that's just a natural evolution that every company, frankly, should go through. We're probably actually imminently very close to an entire reframe that will be coming out from our global colleagues on this. But for us, it, it hasn't really changed fundamentally where we're at on climate change. If anything, it's just, again, with new people, new leadership, uh, the natural course of any big organization, we continue to refresh and evolve our entire outlook. Thanks, Chris. So I've already spilled the beans and shared that the reason you're both here together is that your organizations are partners. And so let's dive into that. Kate, why don't you kick us off and will you please tell us about how the partnership came to be and what it involves? 
You know, Danone and EDF have been working together for many years on lots of different efforts, not all on agriculture, not all on methane. But I think this specific piece of our work together really started through what's called the Transform to Net Zero initiative, which we are both members of, and it's a cross-sector initiative that's really focused on catalyzing more ambitious corporate action toward a net zero economy. And through those conversations, we really started to talk more and more about the role that methane plays in stabilizing the climate and the need to immediately reduce methane emissions across all sectors. And then some specific conversations about the dairy sector and opportunities in that space to reduce methane emissions And then kind of Chris and I had a great rapport in those conversations and were able to start having more kind of just EDF Danone dialogue around that as well. Hearing more about all of the work Danone is already doing in this space where they're having barriers and kind of just starting to think through what the opportunities might be to work together. So when Danone was thinking about and setting this ambitious new target of a 30% reduction of methane from their fresh milk supply chain by 2030, We were really excited about that opportunity and thinking through, okay, how can we work collaboratively to go farther, faster together? And that's really the the purpose of our partnership together. So it's really exciting. And I think we'll be collaborating on a couple of key areas in the science and data arena, kind of how do we improve reporting in this space? Um, How do we elevate financial incentives to farmers to actually deploy the types of practices on the ground that reduce methane emissions? And then also, how do we get others on board, right? We know that EDF and Danone alone aren't going to change the whole landscape. So we need policymakers, we need other companies to come along and join us in this in this effort. And we know many are already doing so, but how do we, again, go farther, faster together? So those are some of the key elements of our work together. And super excited about how we continue to, to build that work plan in more specifics over the next couple of months. Thanks, Katie. Chris, help us understand these problems a bit from your perspective. And I'm curious, both from an environmental and climate perspective, but also from a business perspective, why do these issues matter to Danone and what's at stake for the company? There's a lot of layers to that conversation and that answer. But I think first and foremost, when we think about climate change and we think about our agricultural supply chain, I mean, as a food company, agriculture is front and center absolutely critical to our business, right? Without strong suppliers, without a strong supply, we can't do our business. So business certainty, business continuity are absolutely critical when we think about managing our supply chain. So the type of relationships we build with our suppliers and the farmers matter, number one. Number two, when we think about some of the challenges that those suppliers and farmers are going through across the globe, and of course, it varies by region to region. I mean, we are a global company. We're purchasing commodities from many different countries and continents. So Climate change is having, obviously, various types of impacts when we think about that. So just take the United States, for example. We're purchasing milk, our biggest commodity by by volume and by cost, from over 400 farms in the United States. And that's for a variety of different brands, whether it's Horizon Organic Fluid Milk, whether it's any of our yogurt brands, coffee creamers, and so on. And those farms, a dairy is different across the spectrum in the United States. We have farms that have 20 cows. We have farms that have hundreds of cows, thousands of cows. And each one of those dairies has is feeling the change of climate in different ways. So if they're in California, they may have water concerns, right? They may have pasture concerns that the grass isn't growing enough to feed the cows in a given year. That happened this past year with with significant drought out in the West. In the Midwest, I'll I'll point to 2019, we had too much water at a critical time when folks were putting seed in the ground uh, in the upper Midwest, where it's a huge dairy epicenter for us and for a number of different buyers of dairy. And folks weren't able to get their crop in the ground in June because there was too much water. So what we're finding is a lot of these practices that we're working with farms on, this is about risk mitigation, first and foremost, both to us as the buyer, but also to the farm itself. So they have the kind of feed that they need for their cows. And think about another piece of the why from a company standpoint. Yes, we have multiple audiences that care. Number one, just self-interestedly, we do care about that commodity. We want to minimize volatility of price. We want continuity to make sure that supply is going to be there for years to come. But also we have investors that care. We have, just like myself, case in point, we want to recruit people that care about these issues. And it's talent retention, talent recruitment. Uh, We can bring more talented people who are interested in working for a company that are trying to stake out a new way of doing business and taking on some of this bigger social impact, such as climate change. Also, thinking about the customer and consumer angle. We sell to some very big 
customers um, across the world. And more and more of those customers are asking for these types of results, whether it's climate change, whether it's water, whether it's even biodiversity, thinking about pollinators with some of the almond growers that we work with, for example. So we're now able to produce results for our customers and consumers, and they're asking more and more for that. So it sounds like risk mitigation combined with employees caring, customers caring, investors caring, and climate action is really an imperative. But help us understand the complexity of climate action for a company like Danone, and particularly thinking about the scale that you have. What sort of scale does Danone operate at? You mentioned 400 farms, but also a global supply chain and global customer base. So how complete of a transformation are you aiming for? And what are your biggest barriers in doing more or moving faster? Yeah. So stepping back a bit, just thinking about, again, we have a full scope, scope one, two, and three, as they call it, a commitment on our science-based target initiative. And scope three as a food company is by far and away the biggest. It's also the most challenging because those are our suppliers that we have to work with. So agriculture as a whole is probably roughly two thirds of our entire greenhouse gas footprint. Dairy alone is well over half of our scope three footprint. So without touching agriculture, we're not making the kind of impact that we obviously need to make for our commitments or let alone for for the climate challenge itself. So ag is the lever. Ag is the opportunity. And again, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of other ancillary benefits that come with that. We have over 50,000 dairy farms across the world that we work with. So 400 plus in the United States, but tens of thousands worldwide. That's some impact, number one. And that's a challenge, right? That's a logistically, those are a lot of small, and you have to think about this. This is the truth. No matter what country you're in, those are all individual small businesses. They may supply us through a cooperative or they may, you know, we may interact with them in different ways, but those are a lot of individuals to touch. So we have to think strategically according to region, according to the situation with those farms about how can we actually push scale? So I'll give you an example in Morocco where we have tens of thousands of small shareholder farms that we supply from. We have to think, how do we aggregate strategies to touch 10,000 plus farmers? And we've been working on different systems already to provide technical assistance, provide education on nutrition and genomics, for example, to a couple thousand of those farms. Those are some of the leaders now that we can think about leveraging and amplifying their learnings to reach that other 10,000 farms in that country. So that's just one example. We do similar methods here in the United States, but you know, it's, it's going to require slightly different strategies depending on the country and region, just based on where these folks are, are supplying us milk. Katie, this is a good moment to go back to you. Now that we understand some of Chris's goals, as well as the difficulty of his work, especially at that sort of scale of tens of thousands of farmers, let's hear about how EDF helps. You spoke before about some of the goals of the partnership, but walk us through how EDF is helping a partner like Danone make progress on these issues. Building on what Chris said about some of the challenges, some of the things that we're really targeting in our work with Danone, I would kind of, again, go back to those three key buckets, right? One is how do we help get the toolkit of solutions really clearly articulated in these different regions? And again, depending on the region, it's going to be different different practices or innovations or technologies that can go on the ground. And so that's a science question, right? What's working in different places? How can we deploy EDF's best science to understand that better and continue to create those tailored opportunities on the ground so that when Danone's going to their farmers and offering these various opportunities, they know that's going to create a durable climate benefit. And also in that category of science and solutions is how do you then account for it, right? They're talking about a complex supply chain. How can they get better at modeling the outcomes that they're actually driving on the ground and incorporating that into their storytelling, into their branding, into their accounting writ large? So that's one key place where EDF as a science-based organization can partner with the Danone team, which also has great scientific and agricultural knowledge and really work more collaboratively in some of those areas. Yeah, I'll give you a tangible example where that's popping up right now in the United States and and probably other geographies as well. When we think about manure management, which could be anywhere from a third to half of a dairy's methane footprint, depending on the farm. And manure obviously has other challenges that come with it. It can be a fantastic synthetic fertilizer substitute if used appropriately. It can also be a water challenge if it's not stored and, and managed appropriately. So there's a lot of other reasons to look at manure solutions in addition to methane. The challenge with manure solutions is, number one, from a farm standpoint, they can be very expensive. This is 
could be hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment, depending on the farm, that are the solutions. So we have to think creatively about how, A, how to finance those. But before we even get to the how to finance, what's the right piece of equipment? What's the right management technique for that farm? And so even we just had uh, our dairy farmers together for the first time since pre-pandemic this past week. And so we had a couple hundred dairy farms in the room, again, of all sizes, just in the United States. There may be anywhere from eight to 10 manure solutions available for them to use, all different sorts of technologies and equipment. It's going to be a very customized discussion per farm. So we have to work with the farm on what looks best for their design, what looks best for their climate and geography, and then think about, okay, well, how does that get installed and how does that get managed appropriately? And then and then the financing, okay, as we have a half million dollar piece of equipment, we have three quarters of a million dollar piece of equipment, how do we get that in there? And you know, a lot of folks like to think about anaerobic digesters as this massive solution for manure management. And it is, it can be an incredible solution for creating renewable biogas, but not every farm is going to be able to finance of an anaerobic digester. So take small farms, for example, unless they're able to aggregate manure in a community of farms, anaerobic digesters are probably going to be out of reach for most small and mid-sized farms. However, there's all these other pieces of equipment. So I'll give you an example of one. Liquid solid separators is a piece of equipment that literally separates the water from the manure from the solid. What that does is it reduces the amount of methane overall that's being created from otherwise what would be a pile of, of intact manure. And it's also creating a synthetic fertilizer substitute. So there's multiple benefits here. That piece of equipment could be anywhere from a half million to three quarters of a million dollars, but it can be applicable on a smaller mid-sized farm. It could have anywhere from a 25 to 35% reduction in methane on any given farm. So we're very excited about some of these manure technologies, but the question is, Getting the farm to accept, number one, they have to work with us and tell us what's most appropriate for their farm. And then, of course, the financing. And then where this comes back to what Katie was saying, we need to understand how to best measure the impact of that, right? And there's a lot of models and there's different tools out there. And we're going to have to keep fine tuning to make sure that we're having high integrity measurements for many different reasons. Obviously, we don't want to overstate the impact, but we also don't want to understate it either. We want to make sure the farmer's getting the full value out of the impact that they're helping create. Great. So a lot of collaboration around science and data and reporting, both to improve Danone's application of these new technologies, but also presumably to to share more broadly. Um, and you also mentioned financing a couple of times. Are there co-funding models? Is there opportunities to bring in public sector funding? Are there areas for collaboration where you are working together on, on the financing side? Yeah, that's definitely another big part of this because we know that, as Chris said earlier, right, no farmer is going to be able to cover the entire cost of some of these technologies themselves. And so how can we work collaboratively with private sector dollars, but also connect that to public sector dollars through programs like USDA funding or other um, entities, or maybe it's collaboration across the supply chain, right? So if multiple companies are all have this same milk product in their scope three emissions, how can they work together to help the farmer transition and deliver this type of technology onto the ground? So that can be complicated, right? Because we're talking about meshing together public private dollars or multiple different entities coming together, but I think is so critical and we'll be working collaboratively on how to do that in, in an efficient and effective way. And for us, I think it's just a question of there's not going to be a silver bullet on financing. I mean, number one, this is requires meaningful, significant investment across the value chain for us. And I think no way around it. Danone's going to have to. And we've had skin in the game. We'll continue to put significant budget into these investments with our farms. But but no one's budget is unlimited. Right. So we have to think creatively how to leverage each dollar we put in. Sometimes that may mean the farm thinking about, you know, trying to incentivize through our purchasing contracts about how they can find efficiencies for some of that low hanging fruit and incentivize those kind of savings within the within the contract that we have with the farm. And then for some of these bigger investments, we certainly can can think about low interest loans. Uh, we've been looking at different ideas around that. And then also, how do we blend government dollars with our budget so that we can get a bigger impact across more farm? That only works if a government has to be a willing partner, which we're pretty fortunate in the United States. We have a pretty incredible Department of Agriculture. We also have State Department of Agriculture that are willing to co-invest at the farm level. So how do we think of 
the supply chain and the buyers as a really helpful service provider intermediary to get more government dollars out and increase the overall impact. And so we're we're trying to redesign those models with government right now. And our Department of Agriculture has been a really incredible partner. We uh, A couple of years ago, we got a grant. It's called a Conservation Innovation Grant, which is a big program at our USDA. And we were able to double the impact of our budget through those farms. But then Danone and our partners, we were able to create very creative, different incentive contracts to dole those dollars out and help pay for some of these bigger infrastructure projects, help try different technologies at both the field and the manure level, uh, for example, that maybe are a little unknown, maybe we're not sure, but these are the kind of dollars we figured out on one farm. And if it works well, then we can duplicate it over to, to other farms down the road. We've also, this is something we're really excited about, thinking about sharing arrangements. So the really interesting thing about dairies is that they're often buying from neighboring growers for the feed, right? So if there's ways that they can distribute more of their manure, again, like a liquid solid separator and taking that dry matter and actually getting more acres access through their network of growers, that's an opportunity. Or purchasing cover crop equipment, which can be an upfront barrier for a lot, getting the dairy to actually manage that equipment and then lease it or loan it out to neighboring growers so that more acres are impacted by that equipment purchase. So think trying to think creatively to stretch the dollar as much as we can. Chris, when listeners hear grants going to companies, they might immediately get triggered and think, okay, is this corporate welfare? Tell us about your response to that. Well, a couple of things. Number one, I should be more clear that from the Department of Agriculture standpoint, and those are the grants we've been managing for the most part, not a single dollar is coming to the company. We're using nonprofits or other intermediaries to take our dollar and to take the government dollar and then put it to the farm. So those dollars are meant for the farm and that's where they're going. So they're not coming to Denone at all. The second piece of it, I, you know, there are different policy proposals out there that may create different transactions. But if we're looking to make significant investments and meaningful impact for the climate from agriculture, which can, you know, U.S. anywhere from, let's say, call it nine, 10% roughly of our overall U.S. footprint. We have to treat it just like we would the energy sector, just like we would the transportation sector. We have to think about meaningful incentives to touch, in the U.S. case, over 2 million farmers in this country, 2 million small businesses that we have to touch. So A, number one, we need more people than to know doing this, which we do. I think that that world's growing, which is great. And we have to think about creative ways to get those dollars out on the ground, which is where the impact's taking place. It's not taking place in the company. It's taking place out on the ground with the farms. Something you mentioned, Chris, when we spoke earlier that really stuck my mind was that EDF helped you prioritize methane. Tell us about how that happened and the impact that you're hoping to have by prioritizing methane. Yeah, I think so. On one hand, we've been at it in the U.S. for over six, five, six years now with our regenerative ag program, learning with farms, understanding the various different levers from the crop to the manure to the animal nutrition and so on, the things that can get us these different climate benefits. The levers themselves weren't new to us. However, a big entry point for a lot of farms is thinking about soil health, thinking about the cropland piece where there is some methane benefits, there's N2O benefits, there's carbon sequestration, it's a pretty dynamic system. And that was an entry point for a lot of our farms uh, in the early years. So as I think Katie, what was it a couple of years ago, it was probably 20, 2020, 2021, over the course of some good pandemic conversations online, uh, we started to really examine, well, learn and understand the science behind methane. So that time value of decreasing methane now, giving us that better opportunity to, to minimize impact to a 1.5 overall, that was something that from a science, from a climate science standpoint, I'll just say for myself, it wasn't something that I was fully aware of, right? Just that time value of methane compared to CO2. So the issue is not we're decreasing our soil work or decreasing our CO2 work. It's still important to us for a number of reasons, because that's maybe where a farm wants to start in some cases, but overall just from a Danone budget standpoint, we can have some of the biggest impact through manure, through enteric investments down the road. I think EDF helped us really understand that that time value of methane is critical. Katie, anything you'd like to add about methane? A lot of people, when they hear climate, they think carbon dioxide, and that is absolutely critical. Carbon dioxide is a must do in terms of reducing to net zero by mid-century. Um, in order to get us on the best possible trajectory for climate. But I think methane is kind of a misunderstood little sister um, in the climate in the climate world. And EDF has really been focusing a lot of effort on how to help policymakers and companies understand the importance of methane as a short-lived climate pollutant, but something that's very potent in the near term, which means that in my lifetime, the thing that we can be doing to reduce 
the rate of warming in the next couple of decades is to reduce methane emissions. And I think that's often lost in the climate conversation or just deprioritized. And I think something that's really important, especially for companies in the agriculture sector who source dairy or livestock products, because methane is a big part of the footprint for those companies. So really understanding how that plays in is critical as they're thinking about their climate strategies. Again, this is a couple of years process for us to really understand the importance, understand where the levers are, you know, where the best use of our dollars can go right across our value chain with different farms. And so we've been talking about this for you know a couple of years now, but we're a big company. We got a lot of people. There's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. We've got a lot of people that need to think about this and understand it from different angles, you know, whether it's our buyers, whether it's our regenerative ag team, whether it's our sustainability team and so on and so on. Um, this is going to be the case in any company. So our new leadership, our new C- global CEO, Antoine de uh, Santafrique, I had a chance to meet him this past November. He came to New York. So I was down there with others and, and we were talking about just a number of different issues. And without prompt, without me asking a specific question on it, he said, and you know, we need to start thinking more about methane. And it was just light bulb went off. I'm like, oh, okay. These conversations are trickling in the right direction, right? Our, our CEO, who is, hadn't been at the time with the company just over a year, that's the conversation had been trickling up from these one-off presentations that EDF had been hosting for us, but had been trickling through the company in a lot of different directions, which is a fantastic thing to see. I mean, to see people really be curious, learn, continue to reevaluate where we're headed and how we can have the best impact possible. Let's move from methane to talk about your role in the ecosystem more broadly. The concept of bringing other companies along has come up a couple of times and not just pursuing the impact that you can create alone or just with your supply chain, but also helping other companies in the space learn about what you're doing. And a starting point is just to understand why that matters. Why for Danone particularly, why get other companies to follow? I think it goes back to our mantra of public policy advocacy, being involved in these these great bigger conversations that are larger than just about Danone, right? I mean, climate is probably the perfect example of you can you can be absolutely perfect, which of course no one is, and hit every impact measurement possible, but then so what, right? If if everybody else isn't doing the same. So what if Danone has met all our goals, but everybody else has been uh, status quo, which I don't think is the case. But you know, one actor is not going to solve climate. We all know that. I think it also goes to our B Corp mentality of trying to drive a company towards this dual purpose. You know, how can we take part in these different conversations that are taking place, whether it's at government or frankly within industry circles? Katie mentioned the, the tons, the net zero group that we're a part of. I mean, we're learning from Nike. We're learning from Microsoft. We're learning from others at the table who aren't in food and vice versa. Those kind of conversations are really important. So there's going to be different types of you know, it's not all advocacy, right? Sometimes it's just about learning from others. And then sometimes it's about recruiting others in, be a part of the conversation. I mean, we talk to other dairy companies all the time. There's other great leaders out there, to name a couple, Nestle, Unilever, that are similar kind of companies as we are. I mean, they're on the path to doing some really good things too. So I think, you know, moving forward, I think it's really important too. And it can be hard sometimes in this this universe of everybody touting their latest and greatest uh, effort. We got to be humble. We got to be, this is really hard work. We're going to stumble. We're going to not be perfect all the time. And it's really hard to get the right kind of strategy together, which is why we need EF to help bounce ideas off of and, and be that strategic advisor for us. But, you know, not be preachy because if we're preachy, then we're not, we're not doing anything, right? We're not, we're not bringing in others. We've got to be true collaborators, um, sometimes with our competitors, and really think about how we can move the needle together. Katie, motivating companies to do more for the environment and climate is, is really core to your work. What do you see as the most effective strategies, not just for getting them engaged or making commitments, but really for stepping it up a notch and accelerating their effort? It really depends on the company. So every company is on their own journey in this space. And really have to create kind of tailored options depending on the starting place. So for some companies, they may not have any sustainability staff, or maybe they just have one sustainability person who's working on everything from renewable energy to regenerative agriculture and methane emissions. And they may not, you know, they're really at a place of starting to understand the science, understanding what the levers are, understanding even their own supply chain and where it may touch down. And so providing them with those easy to access, easy to understand messages about 
what they can be doing now, what they can be doing later, and get providing the stepping stones that feel achievable and actionable for that specific setting is really critical. Other companies, and I'd put Denote in this bucket, right, have an amazingly talented set of sustainability staff who've been working on this for a long time. And in that instance, it's about listening to what are the key barriers that they're specifically facing, providing maybe a new vantage point, like Chris was talking about, we really started talking to them a lot about ag methane. And that was perhaps for some of them, a a little bit of a newer vantage point that they could learn from and then bring internally. And I see my role as really, how can I equip those internal change agents with, with what they need to start that trickle effect that Chris was talking about, right? And providing them with actionable resources that help them overcome the barriers that they're facing as they're trying to adopt. So I think it, it kind of depends, but it's a combination of relationship building and trust building and then working people through that pipeline to leadership. And then certainly the role of coalitions has an important role to play here too, right? In terms of bringing companies together to problem solve together. That's another value of bringing other companies along in the, in the journey and bringing other companies to the table. Because things like accounting, things like science and research and development of new solutions, that's problems that everybody is going to be facing. And so how can folks work together to solve those problems where it makes sense within you know, the range of what companies can collaborate on? And then where do companies need to go and work individually? And that's a really critical piece of the conversation. I'll give you a tangible example on methane where coalitions, I think, and this is future looking, that I think some of our work with EDF will lead to this direction, but enteric methane, right? This is the methane that comes from a ruminant, a cow's digestive system. Uh, as it's eating. And this is one of the big pieces of the pie, right? It could be 50 to 70% of a dairy's overall methane footprint could come from just the digestion alone. So a lot of that can be looked at with genomics and, and better feed and rationale and stuff like that. But there's a lot of future innovation coming. There's a lot of new technologies coming. And our teams have scoped a lot of this. We've landscaped a lot of this work, but there's always something new on the horizon. One thing that's really challenging for us because we're a food company, we're not a scientific institution, is to go survey all these researchers that are doing this cutting edge work. We need help distilling down that science. We need help understanding like which research body should we be reading? Which one should we not? Frankly, we need the summaries of those research reports because again, we're, we're, we're in the food business. We're not scientists. So there are a few scientists in the company, but by and large, that's not our job, right? So we need help distilling down this kind of burgeoning science that's coming to play, especially on this issue of enteric methane. So we've talked a bit about financing opportunities and that there's more capital going into the space. And it suggests that there's probably new opportunities for investors. And I know Danone has invested in innovative climate tech companies, including actually Symbrosia, a company that adds seaweed to livestock feed. So they burp less methane. And if you're interested in hearing more, we actually interviewed Symbrosia's founder for an episode last October. But I'm curious, are there investment areas you're excited about or think investors should look into? Yeah, I think, look, Alexia and her team at Symbrosia are absolutely fascinating, and we have high hopes that they continue to do good work, and, and hopefully we can get to a commercial product someday with them. That in particular was something that our Danone Manifesto venture arm uh, made that investment. So like a lot of uh, food companies these days, our larger food companies, we have a, we have a venture capital uh, group, and they're looking across the board at different types of innovations and technologies. There's a long list of different things that they've been digging into, which is super interesting to just see that kind of cutting edge aspect in the food world come together. Symbiosis is a really interesting one. So I think there is that role. we put a, a bit of a share into that into that company. We've looked at others like Zelp, which is a technology that can actually catalyze or remove the methane from the digestive burps of a cow, for example, remains to be seen how that one actually would work. Um, I know they're working on some different applications there, but the core technology was interesting enough for us to make an investment and see where that goes. Again, these are all pre-commercial, have a long way to go sort of ideas. So like a lot of folks, we are doing some due diligence, we're doing some vetting, and we're making a few, placing a few bets here and there. They may not all come together. So we have to work with those investors and see how we can best uh, move them through the process from pre-commercial to commercial. So there is that role for sure uh, from the venture capital side of things. And then, like I mentioned, in just our procurement team, our regenerative ag team, helping farms just think through different technologies that are available to them right now, because not everyone's going to be applicable to every farm. But I think we have a, a really strong role to play in helping farms pilot different ideas, as long as it's safe, as long as it's 
works and within their operation itself, we can help vet different ideas and be the upfront capital to pilot some of those ideas. Chris, Katie, we've been talking a lot about practices and techniques and strategies and technology to reduce the methane emitted from livestock and cows in particular. Some would say we just need to reduce the amount of dependence on cows and dairy uh, and meat. And in fact, uh, our friends at Speed and Scale, who set up a tracker and a whole list of OKRs and objectives and key results, have an entire key result focused on the reduction of dependence on meat and dairy. And so I'm curious about that pathway. Is, is it something that you're working on as well? And how do you feel about the perspective that the technology and the efforts to reduce methane from cows isn't enough? We just need to reduce animal agriculture. Yeah, I think, look, animal agriculture, number one, is pretty diverse. There's a lot of different pieces of it, but I'll just speak to dairy because that's, that's who we are. That's what we do. Danone's a 100-year-old dairy company. We literally came to be because we thought and believe still to this day that yogurt is a very, very nutrient-dense, healthy uh, option for people around the world of all economic classes. It's a very affordable, very available product that is incredibly nutritious. My little kids eat it every day. I eat it every day. I think there is uh, always balance, always moderation with any diet that is necessary, no matter what we're talking about. But on a per dollar basis, we believe that yogurt continues to be an incredibly important nutrient dense option for all people in most geographies. And there's a lot of cultural relevance to that in many, many places too. We want to preserve that option for consumers. Um, it's affordable. It's good for them and they like it. And, and we think there's a way to make dairy Dairy is an opportunity to be a solution versus just a challenge. So we'll, we'll continue to believe that. That said, we're a pretty diverse company. We, we look at a lot of different options. We'll continue to look at a lot of different options. No mystery, no not a hidden secret that we've invested in plant-based options across the, the entire company, frankly. So here in the US, for example, um, you look at Silk brand or So Delicious brand. These are soy alternatives. These are coconut alternatives, almond alternatives, oat it's uh, legumes that provide high quality protein um, and a lot of those plant-based as soy is, a, is almost a dairy equivalent from a protein standpoint. So we look at a variety of different healthy and sustainable options. And I have to remind folks of this again, like it's really hard to, if not impossible, to tell a farmer how to farm. It's also really hard, if not impossible, to tell a consumer how to eat. And so we've got to work on both ends and look at incentives and look at opportunities for both. From a plant-based standpoint, Nine out of 10 homes in the United States, anyhow, that buy plant-based also buy dairy. It's a, these are mixed households with mixed preferences, and they're looking for different health and attributes and, even, and environmental attributes. And we, and we think we can provide better quality products across the board. From EDF's perspective, you know, just building on some of what Chris was talking about, people really make dietary choices for all kinds of personal reasons. It's about health. It's about religion, family finances, culture. And when you look at that globally, it can be a very diverse picture. And so we don't think it's appropriate or effective for EDF to be telling people what to eat, especially in developing countries where families may be really struggling to meet the critical nutritional needs of their families. And livestock or dairy can be a big part of meeting those nutritional needs. So we're really focusing on how do we make sure that every single bite that a consumer takes is as low emissions as possible, no matter what that choice is. And you can do that with policy, you can do that with corporate engagement, financial incentives, and just making sure that the resources and tools are available to do that. So that's really been the, the main thrust. And we really need to find ways that we can feed the world in the most sustainable way possible. And I think reducing agricultural methane emissions has to be part of that puzzle. And that's what this is about. Thanks, Katie. You've mentioned policy advocacy a couple of times. And so I'm curious, what are some policy priorities that you're working on now? Looking specifically here in the US, there are some great opportunities coming down the pipe as we're looking at the Farm Bill and other USDA programs that are being created. Also, the Inflation Reduction Act, right? How do we make sure that that is helping to support the types of climate impacts and incentives to farmers that we want to be seeing? So I think that's one big opportunity here in the US. I think another opportunity that we're following closely is public sector investment in the research and development of enteric solutions. As Chris was saying, this is a complicated space and a space where we need some more solutions in the pipeline. And when we did a look at where investment is going from the public sector into R&D for climate, agriculture was 35 times smaller 
than the clean energy R&D investment from the public sector. And within agriculture, enteric methane emissions was only 2% of federal R&D spend. So that's a huge opportunity as well to help increase public sector dollars going to enteric methane and manure methane and other solutions that can really help to spur private sector dollars as well flowing into these spaces. So I think those are two kind of key priorities that we're following closely. And then obviously globally as well, you know, how do we get countries to connect to the Global Methane Pledge and start to activate in that area? So those are some of the things EDF is really focused on and working with companies on as well. Yeah, just to add to that, I think globally, obviously, we're excited to try and connect some of these dots between some of the really good policy initiatives here in the United States, but also how do we connect that with Europe? How do we connect that with other locations that we operate in and start to get some coordination across nations? That would be, I mean, we're very involved in UN discussions. We were present in the COPs. We, we go to the UN Assembly in September. So how do we connect some dots there with EDF, with other companies to actually be coordinated right with with governments across the world to the best we can and obviously the global aligning the global methane pledge is, is a step there to help it's it's a platform that we can draw those conversations to the other thing i'll say is there's been some amazing law that's been passed in the last couple of years the most recent as katie mentions the inflation reduction act there was i mean really an unprecedented level of investment obviously across transportation sector electricity sector home use appliances things of that nature but agriculture was a massive investment in that bill agriculture and forestry, actually both. But there was a roughly about $20 billion over the next four to five years that has been allocated to our Department of Agriculture. And some of that is for incentivizing supply chain work to pr- try and bring in more of that value chain investment to partner with government dollars. Some of that was specifically for enteric innovation. And we're hoping to see some of the um, release or announcement of how that money will be used in the next couple of months. So that's pretty exciting. So there's, there's kind of a the advocacy almost has been done, right, to help create that law. And EDF and, and Danone both were very publicly a part of that advocacy effort for the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, but now we need to go use it, right? And we need to use it well. And we need to show some measurable results from that. So there is, I think, an opportunity to bring in more of the food sector value chain to just participate and be participants with that policy. And then long term, the Farm Bill. Every five years in the United States, the Farm Bill comes up. It's a wonderful piece of legislation that brings in a lot of different interests of all different varieties, but it's our main baseline of agriculture policy in the United States. And that process is kicking off this year in 2023. Remains to be seen where Congress will go with it, but it's an opportunity to think about, as Katie mentioned, that long-term research investments. I mean, we've got an amazing set of research institutions here in the United States with land grants across 50 states, our Department of Agriculture having in-house research And how do we get that all those things coordinated in a way that is going to accelerate the enteric option, for example? So huge amount of opportunities on the table right now. So it's pretty exciting. Katie, Chris, you know, we've talked about a lot of different exciting elements of progress. Thank you for the work that you're doing. Exciting to see this progress. But given the enormity of the challenge of transforming agriculture and decarbonizing food, we clearly have a long way to go. And so I want to leave off just asking your thoughts on on your level of confidence of are we going to be able to transform agriculture to the degree that we need to in the next decade? And what else needs to happen for it to do so? You know, I have two young kids. And so I do this work because I want them to have a stable climate and good food to eat as they grow and develop. And I want their kids to have the same. And I don't think I could do this work if I didn't believe the answer to that question was yes, Jason. Obviously, we have, like you say, a long way to go. We need a lot more action. We need to catalyze much faster action. We need more people stepping in and and doing their part. And we need to overcome some of these key barriers around solution set, around science, around incentives down to the ground and kind of those enablers that will help to drive faster progress. But I definitely think that we can get there. And I think it's because of what Chris started with when he was talking about the business value here, right? This is about business certainty. This is about risk reduction for the agriculture industry and business continuity. And I think that message is really starting to seep in that climate action is paramount to business success in the long term, not just for companies like Danone, but for farmers who are those small business owners that need to drive this change and need to be part of that conversation. So I know that it's hard and this work can sometimes feel slow moving and, and, you know, messy. I think these types of conversations really animate my excitement 
to keep going and progress. And so I do think that we can get there. I've been at this going on 17 years now or so, roughly one way or another. And in the climate ag connection or nexus has been, at least in my view, from 2007, 2008 or so on. So when I went to that COP in Poznan, Poland in 2008, the forestry and agriculture conversations were like literally down the farthest hall away from the center of the conversations that you can imagine. I mean, they're almost, I don't even know if there was an ag conversation at the time. There were forestry ones and we had to go find our own room and talk to each other to have those conversations. So we've come a long way in terms of the center of gravity, including agriculture, still arguably have some distance to go to really bring it in the center of these big conversations. I think the IRA is an example of 10 years ago, that would have been very difficult to get that level of investment in an agriculture alongside the electricity and transportation sectors. So I've seen a number of things change over the last decade plus that give me a lot of hope. And you have to remember too, agriculture is so diverse, right? We use this term ag and we're talking about, again, 2 million plus business owners in the United States, some which are little tiny dairies, big dairies, but then also folks that are growing fruit and vegetables, hundreds of different types of fruit and vegetables out there. These are very complex, diverse systems. So we're going to see progress in different pockets and in different timeframes. And I think we just have to be understanding of that and really looking for the big opportunities where we can get them. I'm excited. I'll give you one other quick antidote. When I worked in government, probably this is probably 2012, and I was working on a farm bill in the US Senate. And I remember pulling in specifically, I won't name names, but five or so very big CPG companies and retailers to talk about sustainability and how they could help us develop public-private partnership policies, which we passed a law called the Regional Conservation Partnership Program in 2014. That's still USDA's premier public-private partnership program that the IRA just put a bunch of money into, for example. So bunch of years later, it's still evolving and still improving. But these companies that we asked, you know, do you have an interest? What's your sustainability platform look like? I mean, they had basically, I mean, some interesting efforts and some interesting partnerships. I mean, but we are so light years past those conversations. We now have companies, actually multiple companies lobbying and advocating for these policies because they want to go use them and they want to amplify their investment and they want measurable change, not qualitative change, measurable, quantifiable change because it's important to them and important to their underlying business. So that didn't exist 10 years ago. We are in a fundamentally different place right now with the interest, with the type of models being created and ultimately with the impact. We have a heck of a long way to go, but I think the foundation is fundamentally different right now. Katie, Chris, thank you so much for your time today and for all this important work that you're doing. Thanks. Thank you, Jason. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.